Hello, good morning, Jerome Dixon. I'm so thrilled to have you here at our home to tell, help you, to facilitate you telling a story that you've spoken to me once before, which really affected me deeply and the people that you shared the story with. Um, I want, you know, when I started Mr. Feelgood, when Pete and I started Mr. Feelgood, the idea was to build a platform for us to be inspired and to celebrate from other people within our community and to push back against toxicity politically and with the pandemic. And uh, I've interviewed many famous people from all walks of life, but Mr. Feelgood was really a platform to share stories from famous people, non-famous people, people who have something to add to the quality and the understanding of this crazy thing called life. So, you know, you struck me so deeply as someone, as, as a man of integrity, and given what you endured being arrested when you were 17 years old and incarcerated for 21 and a half years before you were exonerated, I'm just blown away by your grace your empathy, your wisdom, and I'd love to share your story. So could you tell me the story? Sure, good morning and uh, thank you for having me. Um, just one, one correction, I haven't been exonerated yet. Okay, But I'm Forgive in the me. process of being made whole. Okay. Um, July 25th, 1990, mm -hmm. uh, wrong place, wrong time. A murder occurred and um, I was about two and a half blocks away from where the murder occurred. The uh, police picked me up, uh, drove me to the immediate crime scene, at which point when we arrived there, there was a, uh, a group of officers there um, surrounding a body that was laying on the pavement. Um, from the backseat of the patrol car, I could see this body and I could also see a river of blood running from this body. Um, the young man was shot in the head and uh, moments later a sergeant came up to the side of the patrol car and opened the door and the first words he uttered to me was, young man, you have a lot of explaining to do about that dead body. I don't remember what my exact words were in response, but I said something along these terms. I don't know what you're talking about. I was up the street with my friends who are still there. His response, the sergeant's response was, if that's the game you wanna play, so be it. He slammed the car door. I remained in the backseat of the patrol car for a long time. Were you handcuffed at this point? Or at not? this point, I was not handcuffed. Okay. Um, I could also see from the uh, from a distance there were three individuals who were surrounded around. They were they were surrounded by uh, law enforcement officers, and at one particular moment, they the officers had shined a bright light on my face and walked these three individuals over to the car. Um, and then I could hear, you know, the individuals crying. And I could also hear one of the individuals saying, yes, that was him. 
Um, Were you wearing a hat at this point? I was wearing a, a what back then it was a fishing hat. Mm. And the fishing hat had a, a beak on it. Mm -hmm. And the beak was flipped upward. Mm -hmm. And um, sometime after that, uh, that parading with the law enforcement officers at the car, they took me downtown. Um, there, I was put in a, a room, and in the room was a table with chairs, and um, sometime later, I was met by an officer. Mm. An officer came in with a, a clipboard and some, some paper, and he said, I just want to have a conversation with you. Um, why don't you tell me what happened? And I told him what happened. I told him that I was uh, at my friend's place and we were hanging out all day there. Mm -hmm. And I was awaiting for a friend of mine to come pick me up to take me home. Mm. Um, sometime later, um, the officer walked out of the room. Um, and then there was another officer that came in, asked me the same questions and I repeated the same truth statement. And, um, you know, this went on for hours and hours. In fact, it went on for 25 hours. 25 hours. And didn't you get a phone call? Couldn't you, isn't that, uh, are they allowed to hold you for that amount of time or? You know, I wish I had the legal jargon to answer that question, mm -hmm. but I, I, I don't. Mm -hmm. um, to answer your question, they read me my rights in the 25th hour. Mm -hmm. But I want to take, I want to like walk you through that sure. process in retrospect. Um, you know, the first eight hours, the interrogating officers were extremely friendly. You know, they were very engaging. Going into that 16th hour, their, their demeanor and, and tone changed dramatically. It became more authoritative. The tone was, you're lying. It was, you're not telling the truth. Um, they... They said that uh, there were people that could put me at the that would put me at the crime scene, um, and that if I didn't tell the truth, then I would uh, never come out of that place. I would never come out of that room. And going into that next twenty fourth hour, you know, I, I just felt alone. Uh, I was terrified. I remember shaking uncontrollably, uncontrollably with fear, uncertainty. And I remember um, coming up close to that 25th hour. I just couldn't take the pressure anymore. And I remember the interrogating officer said, um, I, excuse me, I said, you know, whatever you want to hear, I'll tell you. And I remember tears just uh, coming down my face uncontrollably. And the investigating officer slammed his hands on the table, said, finally, we're getting somewhere, the truth. And so what um, happened was that they, the interrogating officers, um, gave me what they thought happened. They gave me a scenario. They painted a scenario, scenario how they believed the crime happened. And they told me to reiterate that scenario to them, but put myself into the equation. Mm. And so as I put myself into their equation, mm -hmm. they begin to take notes mm -hmm. and hit the record button. Mm -hmm. 
and this is how they got a confession from me. My confession alone was used against me. Um, I, was, I was presented with, uh, as my public defender said, a guaranteed deal. She said that I was in a no-win situation and it would be in my best interest to take this, this special deal to the California Youth Authority for first degree murder, three counts of robbery and assault with a deadly weapon. She said um, that, that by pleading to this, I would be released before my 25th birthday and I would have my whole adult life ahead of me. And it would be in my best interest to take this deal. I didn't know what else to do. Mm. She said, my confession alone is what, what's going to like seal the deal. Mm. And I kept saying, look, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. It didn't matter. I was in a no-win situation. And so I, I took the deal. Mm. I took the deal to the California Youth Authority for first-degree murder, three counts of robbery, and assault with a deadly weapon. Six months into that committed deal, I was brought back to court. That deal was vacated. I was now tried as an adult. And I was presented with a new deal, which was plea to a lesser charge from a first degree to a second degree. And by doing so, I would be pleading to a sentence of 18 years to life in adult prison. Once again, I was in a no-win situation. I had already confessed mm. and I had already pled guilty. And so, again, I didn't know what else to do, now 18. And if I didn't choose that, um, that second deal, I would go to trial based on what my public defender stated to me. I would go to trial based on my confession, I would lose. And I would receive the maximum sentence of 50 years to life in prison. So I chose 18 years to life, second degree murder, and was sent to, back to the California Youth Authority, at which point I remained at the California Youth Authority until I was 23. Um, I was then transferred from the California Youth Authority to the Adult Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, which is prison. Now I, am, now I have to deal with a parole board uh, process for them to determine whether or not I would ever be eligible for, for parole. Mm -hmm. However, I was an indeterminate lifer. Mm -hmm. And so that meant that they could hold me in prison for life. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, I appeared before the parole board, uh, I think five times, six times. And each time that I had appeared before them, my stance was, you know, I don't want to talk about the, the, the life crime because they didn't want to hear it. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't be shown any type of due justice. And so the district attorney had stated, well, if you're not going to talk about your life crime, you're never going to get out of here. And so at my fifth hearing, I decided to explain um, how a 17-year-old kid who um, at the time was a 35-year-old man mm -hmm. um, who was put in an adult situation, now fighting for his freedom. I tried to explain it to him the best I could, but I just didn't come across as, as with clarifying answers. Mm. And so I received a three-year denial. Mm. And so um, that puts me now at the 21st year. And so uh, I appeared again, and this time, I, I explained with extreme details how I was put in an adult situation 
25 hours, forced to confess to a crime I didn't do, who again was a now a 38-year-old man um, fighting for his freedom. Mind you, while in prison, I never had not one rule violation. And so that was a huge question for the parole board. How was it that I had spent 21 years in prison and I don't have any rule violation that would show that I needed any type of rehabilitation? And I had an answer for them. I told the commissioning panel that I didn't belong here and therefore I wasn't gonna act like I belonged there. And so as I explained to the, to the parole board with clarity, clarifying answers, um, how that 17-year-old kid was put in that adult situation, the parole board went to recess and upon their return, they acknowledged my innocence. That was something that the parole board has never done before. Wow. Acknowledged an individual's uh, uh, innocence. And they went as far as saying, you know what, Mr. Dixon, we're not absolving you from the injustice that occurred 20 some years ago. We're saying that you don't belong here. Hmm. So we're gonna find you suitable and release you. Hmm. And so I was paroled um, October 17, 2011. Hmm. Uh, I was paroled to uh, the Los Angeles area. Um, upon my release, I had a, um, a job offer at a law firm. And so my second day home, I walked into the law firm and I was, had a position as an intern and I stayed there, you know, and I tried to adjust as, as best as I could. The only people in the law firm that knew about my past was the senior attorney and their partner, his mm. partner. And so I masked where I came from very well, you know, because I didn't, I came home and I didn't want to be judged again mm. and again and again. Mm because I wasn't exonerated. So there would always be that question mark. Mm. You know, you say one thing, but yet the courts deemed something else. Mm. You know, and so that was always a, um, a struggle for me. Wow, incredible <clears throat> story. Um, how, did you, how did you deal as a young man of 17, being taken away from a family that was a loving family, a good family, and being put into this sort of youth detention prison, I guess? How did you deal with that, that shift? How did you deal with keeping yourself so focused? How did you deal with the terror and the fear and the loneliness and the injustness of, of this situation? How were you able to you know, protect yourself, keep your marbles and keep your faith? Um, number one, it was very difficult. Um, I never clicked up in prison, never clicked up with any prison gang. Right. You know, the last thing that I wanted to do was you know, call home and say, hey, mom, guess what? I'm a, you know, I'm a gang member now. Mm. You know, it's bad enough that I was in prison for something that I didn't do. Mm. And so I was an outsider. I was, you know, I was ostracized because I didn't click up. Mm -hmm. And there came a lot of, you know, backlash from me being an outsider. You know, I couldn't lift weights when everybody else. I couldn't do like some of the, the you know, the, I couldn't partake in a lot of the the functions that happened on the prison yard because I wasn't affiliated. Mm. Um, I was, again, I was ostracized and it was very difficult um, for um, a short period of time in, that car in my incarceration. I, you know, I didn't really speak much. There was only two words that I probably uttered and that was, what's up? Mm. Um, and again, it was very difficult. You know, you asked how did I, you know, maintain my sanity, you know, for those years. For the most part, you know, I entered into a dark little cave. 
I was safe there. You know, mentally I'm speaking. I was right. safe in, right. inside this cave. Nobody could harm me. I wouldn't allow anybody in. You know, and a lot of that I had to deal, I had to deal with a lot of um, self-issues. Mm. Um, looking at myself in the mirror. You know, having to ask myself, you know, the hard questions. Dude, why did you confess to a crime you didn't do? Mm. You know, what was, what, was, what was the reason why? Why did you do it? And it was, again, it was very difficult trying to come to terms with, with why I did what I did. Why you said you did why a crime I, that you didn't correct. commit. Correct, yes. But you were a young man and no. you had extreme pressure on you and you were taken, I would think, you know, it was a shock, massive shock. Mm. And how are you able to sort of maintain that kind of center for 25, 24 hours with two grown cops sort of telling you, pushing you towards what they want to, how they want to draw the narrative. I mean, it's extraordinary. Sure. You know, in retrospect, John, I, I look back and, you know, I was a wreck. A wreck in the sense of um, those 25 hours, you know, let me just paint this picture for you, for 25 hours, I was 17, and you know, those 17 years of my life were joyous. Mm -hmm. You know, don't get me wrong, I was the typical rebellious, rambunctious child growing up, just like any other 17 year old. Mm -hmm. And you know, I, I had, you know, questioned myself a great deal. Mm -hmm. You know, what did I do in those 17 years to deserve this? What did I do? And you know, I just couldn't come up with any logical answers that would justify me being sent to prison for a murder I did not do. And, you know, I, I, I missed out on a lot of positive lived experiences for 21 years. Mm. And I like to sum it up by saying, you know, just imagine holding a live grenade. And inside this live grenade was my 18th birthday, my 21st birthday, you know, the milestones, sure. 25th, 30th, sure. etc. You know, my, I, I, I have a big family. There's eight of us in all. Mm. And I'm the baby. I have mm. a twin sister. And, you know, I, I miss my sisters being married, my nieces and nephews being born, Christmases, Thanksgiving. You know, all of this was bottled up. All, all the milestone, great things that happened was mm. bottled up inside this live grenade. And I held on to it for 21 years. And the reason why I held on to it is because I, I knew that the moment that I would let this grenade go would be the moment that I would explode mm. or implode and I just couldn't do it. You know, I couldn't do it. You know, but then I also had to do a lot of self-reflection. You know, I had to do a lot of looking in the mirror, you know, and I, and I did. Mm. And I, I, you know, going back to me questioning that 17-year-old kid, you know, I, I, I asked him, you know, why'd you do it? You know, let's get to the root cause of that. You know, and I remember there was a, uh, um, there was a time when my parents had decided to separate and I remember that they called all of us, all of my siblings in the living room and um, they told us that they would be separated. Now mind you, I was, I was a child, mm. you know, I think I was probably about 10 or 11, maybe even a little bit older, I don't know, I can't remember. But I remember I was devastated hearing those words from my parents mm. and I remember I ran into the room, my, my room, and my sister came in behind me and I was laying on the bed crying and she was trying to console me. Your twin sister or my, another my, sister? No, my older sister. Okay. And um, she was trying to console me. And I remember 
John telling her what she wanted to hear mm. so that it would get her to stop mm. talking to me. And, and during that time, I developed that learned behavior. Okay. So anytime I got into a pressured situation, conflict, conflict, what did I do? I would tell people what they wanted to hear oh, wow. in order to wow. get out of that situation. Wow. So as a 17 year old kid put in that adult situation, yeah. what happened? I told law enforcement what they wanted to hear, mm -hmm. thinking that that would save me, but it mm -hmm. didn't. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't get it till later on in life in prison when I challenged that 17 year old mm -hmm. kid, mm -hmm. you know, but once I became that 17 year old kid's man mm -hmm. and started to speak on his behalf, my life changed. Amazing. You, you found your autonomy. You found who you were. Did you, just jumping back a little bit, you told <laughs> me before you used to do the track. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about that. So you didn't want to be associated with any clique, with any gang, because you just wanted to do your time. You wanted to, I believe, educate yourself and make the most of all your time whilst you were inside. So where does the track come into it? So, you know, in prison, there's a lot of subgroups. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And you fit into, if, if you fit into one of those subgroups, you could partake in a lot of the, the yard functions. Mm -hmm. And so, so on the yard, there is a track, a mm -hmm. circular track. And the circular track is the only neutral part of the prison yard. Mm -hmm. So I had every right to run around the track. I couldn't go work out at any of the other pods mm -hmm. because I wasn't affiliated. Right. And so, you know, while everybody was working out, I would just take to the track and I would run. You know, I'd run for like four hours out of the day, you know. Did you get a nickname? Did they call you the runner? What, what, no, I mean, did, you did know. Did people I, just let, <laughs> let you be? You know, I, I was just, in prison, I was just known as JD. JD. You know, but, but that, was, that was my me time. Right. You know, I found peace in doing that, mm. you know, running around the track so much so that when I came home, I decided to run marathons and oh. I've ran eight marathons since, since I came home. Amazing. You know. And, and what about when you were there as a younger man, when you transferred to a sort of an adult penitentiary, how, how did you, did you have a roommate? I suppose you had a cellmate. Sure. Yeah. Do you have one or do you have several? Yeah, I had multiple. And how does that work out? <clears throat> you know, it, it was. It was difficult, mm. you know what I mean? Because you're selling up with somebody who you know nothing about. Mm. You know, you don't know nothing about what his underlying causative factors are. You know, I don't want to be this guy's victim, et cetera. And then let me just say this, you know, in the 21 years, I've never, you know, seen how the media glamorizes prison. I've never seen anybody raped. You know, mm. I've never seen anyone abused. Are there stabbings? Yes, absolutely. Are there... You know, is there riots? Is there gang violence? Absolutely, there is. You know what I mean? And again, you know, in retrospect, I don't, you know, I was fortunate enough to, to miss a lot of that. Okay. You know, I was very fortunate enough to miss a lot of that. I can't believe that you say you're fortunate. This is one of the things that struck me when we spoke before, and one of the reasons I wanted to sort of, you know, provide a platform for you and Mr. Feelgood was you, you, you have such grace and such lack of animosity and bitterness for having, for being a, a, still a, you know, I think you've just turned 50? Just turned 50. Damn, you look good. Um, but you have, you, have, you have such grace and natural elegance and, and lack of bitterness. And I think hearing your story and knowing what happened to you to have 21 and a half years taken from you 
like you say, all those integral moments in your life, um, you miss them. And to, to, to remain positive and to remain without bitterness, to, I see you as you know, a, 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 a father and as a husband and as a son, son you know, and as a, as a friend, and you really exemplify grace to me. So how, how, where did that come from? Where did you, did you make a conscious decision not to be angry, not to regret, not to live in the past? How do you, how do you navigate that one? Great question. You know, um, you know, it's uh, just like with any, any exercise, you know what I mean? You want to work on a certain muscle, you mm. know what I mean? You have to be consistent with it. And a lot of that had to do with my personal growth. Mm. You know, I had to work on myself. Um, you talk about me being, not being um, angry, you know, not exhibiting any type of anger. You know, look, when I came home, I didn't want to be that angry black man mm. that just came out of the system. Nobody mm. wants to be around someone that's angry. I'm sure that you have people in your life or inner circle who you know they just release this negative aura mm. of, and you don't want to be around them. Mm. And I didn't want to be that person. You know, and a lot of that is, is reflect, reflective upon that grenade, you know, picture that I painted for mm. you. You know, when they said to me, Mr. Dixon, get out, go home. You know, I had to choose to leave that grenade at the door. Mm. You know, again, I was holding on to a live grenade, mm. you know, for 21 years. And that live grenade represented my sanity. Mm. You know, let me go a little bit further. You know, I didn't, my mother didn't visit me for mm. 21 years. And the reason behind it is because my mother was under the impression that if her child is innocent of, a, of the crime, her child should be coming home with her if she goes to see that, her child. Mm. But that was a reality that my mother knew was not true. Mm. So she just couldn't muster up the courage to come visit me. I didn't understand that mm. for 21 years. But when I came home and we had a long conversation, she explained to me, and mm. I now understand. You, you know? Did you, did you, so do you, are you saying that she thought you were guilty because because she couldn't come and I'm get you. I'm not saying that. You're not saying I that. I am okay. not saying it. Okay. My mother knew, she believed that wholeheartedly that I was innocent. Right. But the system, the justice system, mm. is, was unfair. Mm. And she knew that they wouldn't give me justice. Mm. Okay. So she just couldn't muster up the courage okay. to come see gotcha. me. Amazing. Um, Let me go, you know, so. Please do, yeah. My, we, we also developed a strong bond corresponding. You know, one of the things that, that me and my mother and I, we used to do is um, what I would do is I would get a blank piece of paper and I would outline my handprint, oh. you know, and I would, I would take that piece of paper and then I would hold it to my chest and then I would oh. hug it and then I would just shove it in an envelope and send it to her. Mm. My reason for doing that is so that my mom could see how I'm growing how over the growing? years, yeah. you know, and that became our love language, Amazing. you know, over, over time, you know, and it was, it was, it, don't get me, man, it was tough. You know, let's go back to the celly. Yeah. You know, me being paired up with cellmates. You know what, I've, I learned a lot of things from a, from a lot of those individuals in prison. Some good things and some bad things. There's some good people in prison, some bad people in prison. Just like there's good people in the world, there's bad people in the world. There's bad cops out there, there's good cops out there. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I chose to, to take those lessons and incorporate them into my lifestyle. Mm -hmm. You know, and this is 
you know, as a result of me taking those lessons, this is the person that you and you are speaking to today. Mm. You know, I've learned a great deal from a lot of those individuals, like I said, both good and bad. Mm. And it's up to the individual to take those lessons and take the good out of it, take the bad out of it, mm. and, you know, apply it to your own life so that, you know, you can be a better person. And again, this is the person, this is the narrative that I've created for myself. And you mentioned as well that you worked, whilst you were incarcerated, you worked in a hospice. I did. So how did that come around and how was that for you? Being a hospice care provider definitely changed my perspective on life. I, you know, I was assigned to um, individuals that became terminal. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you develop relationships with these guys. And you guys, you know, they have heartfelt conversations, not about their life crime, but just about life in general. Mm. And then you watch them, you know, come to, you know, their end of life. And I would sit at their bedside and I would watch them breathe their last breath. And there would be a, a, a calming peace in the room. Mm. You know, and they all, you know, mind you that they would lock you in the room. Mm. as well and so you know after you know the individual would breathe his last breath you know I would just take it in for a minute before pushing a button to summon the the medical staff and the correctional officer and you know I would just take it in and, <sighs> you know and 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 you know it would it would be a out-of-body experience because mm. soon as soon as they come into they rush back they rush into the room and then they send you on your way you go back to the yard, you go you back. You don't speak to anyone? They don't have counseling for you? <clears throat> so there is a process, uh, um, you know, where uh, you have to kind of like detox mm. from going through that. And so, you know, there, there is a, uh, you know, um, a medical staff that you have to speak to. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And, you know, you, you go through like deep meditation mm -hmm. and you know, you kind of unwind, you talk about the experience. You yeah. have to, mm. you can't keep that stuff in because mm. you'll go crazy, mm. you know? And then, so that's, I learned those lessons that I learned in there, you know, again, I incorporated it into my, my own life. Right. And, and how, did you have a mentor? Did you have a chaplain? Did you have somebody that you, especially when you were young, was there anyone that you could go and speak to who would give you counsel or would help you, you know, adjust to this? this sort of catastrophic shift in your life from being outside a regular 17-year-old to suddenly being, you know, in, 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 in inside. So when I first got locked up, I was, uh, again, you know, I was battling with myself trying to understand how I got in here and, you know, my belief in God was shattered, you know, and, and I began to wage a war with God. Mm. You know, why would you do this to me? You know, why me, why me, why me? And, you know, so I, I shied away from religion. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to be associated at all with religion because I believed at that time that religion, my belief in God, that he abandoned me. Mm. You know, what manner, what God, what kind of a God would put a child through a situation like that? Mm. That was my mindset. And so I shied away, you know, you, you asked about mentors, you know, again, I, 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 I looked at the prison yard and I looked to see how, you know, that was my, also my rites of passage, you know, coming of age. You know, I had to grow up really quick in there. And so I learned from a lot of the men in there on how to be, how to conduct myself again. 
both positive and negative. Mm. So you ask me, what were, who were my mentors? They were all my mentors, mm. believe it or not. Mm. I had to grow up in prison. Mm. Incredible, incredible. What about, I think I asked you about this before, and I'm just, you know, I mean, what about crying? What about showing weakness? What about, you know, did you cry? Did you, how, how, how do you protect yourself as a young boy in this sort of insane situation that you're, you're, you're in? And how, how, how do you, you've got to let something out. So I, I can imagine you running for four hours every day is a way to sort of find some kind of peace and find some kind of zen, some kind of release and, and privacy in a way, you know, and get to a different level. Your endorphins are kicking it off because you're mm -hmm. actually exercising. Mm -hmm. But what about crying? What about grieving? What about, you know, did you, did you cry? You know, first of all, everybody is different. Mm. And I remember I cried at the beginning when I was being interrogated for those mm. 25 hours. Mm. And, you know, towards the 20th year, there was an outburst of tears that overwhelmed me. And that was when my sisters came to visit me to tell me that my dad had passed away. Mm. And, and I'll never forget that day. My sisters, you know, I, I received like four visits a year, just to put it in perspective. And each visit probably lasts about three hours. Wow. So if they were in Northern California and I was in Southern California, they would spend five to six hours just to come visit me spend three hours, two and a half hours, you know, and then they would be back on the road to go back to Northern California. Wow. And so, you know, 12 hours a year mm, is what, that's it. Where, where I saw my wow. family. But, but, and it, you know, it became routine mm. as they would come visit me. But this particular visit was different. And, you know, in retrospect, you know, every time my sisters came to visit me, you know, I wanted to present the aura that I was in control. This right. place is not breaking me. Mm. So, you know, when they saw me, they saw this strong young man, you know, um, doing his best to, to try to overcome this situation, mm. dire situation mm. that he was in. But this particular visit, it was different. Their body language was different. And, you know, I, 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 I came in into the visiting room and I sat down and, uh, you know, it was, it was a dead silent for a moment. And my sister, my sister Gwen said, you know, your dad passed away. Hmm. And, uh, I always wanted my dad to, uh, see me walk out of that place, mm -hmm. strong and victorious, you know? And um, he never got that opportunity. But, uh, it's okay. So we talk about crying. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. It, it was a good release. And was that with them? Was that in the room with them? Or no, was that after they left? I didn't, I didn't break down oh, in front of them because okay. I didn't want them to see that. Right. That vulnerability. Vulnerability. Yeah, because they'd be worried about you, of course, because they just want to reach out and look after you. You know, but I remember because, um, and the tears didn't come until 
the next day. So they came on a Sunday. I will never forget it. They came on a Sunday and I held it in. And then the next day I went to my prison job assignment. And uh, there was another uh, guy in there, another inmate. And he had been down for like 30 some years. I'll never forget it. His name was uh, Feliciano. We called him Wino. And um, you know, we always had small talk. Mm -hmm. And we worked in a small little room, and there were four or five of us that worked in this room. And so I came in there first, and I'm just sitting at my, my workstation. And then Wino, he comes in, and he said, uh, JD, what's up? How was your visit? And as soon as he said that, it all came out. Wow, in front and, of him, in front in, of the others. In front of him, wow. just him. Wow, just him. It, just him. And it's like mm. the world stopped. Mm. And, you know, you talk about, you know, compassion and understanding, you know, to another lifer to an, another lifer, you know, when, when, when those are tears of sorrow and, and pain, you know what I mean? From another lifer's perspective. Mm -hmm. And, and I remember I was sitting at my workstation and I was uh, crying uncontrollably and he just came and stood behind me. And, you know, he tapped on my shoulder and he was like, I understand. Oh, he understands because he's He said, I, I, I understand. And I, you know, got myself together. He walked out and uh, that was all we ever said. Wow. <laughs> wow, amazing. That was all we ever said. <sighs> and and it, was, it was a defining moment for me. How so? Well, you know, I became stronger. And I think it allowed me to have a stronger voice when I went to the parole board mm. to speak for that 17-year-old kid. Mm, mm, mm. So at that point, I am now standing on the mountaintop. In fact, you know, people were telling me that I shouldn't go to the parole board and tell them the truth mm. because I would do more harm than good. Mm. Well, what did that mean? Mm. So I easily could have went into the parole board and said, I did it and this is what happened, this is how it happened, and I could have been found suitable. Mm. But I chose to do the opposite. No, this is what happened to me. I didn't do it. Mm. And these are the circumstances that, 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 that presented itself to me that would have, that made me confess to this crime I didn't do. Mm. And I, I explained to that, look at the outcome. Mm. The outcome is that they believed me. Right, so exactly. much so to where I am now sitting before you. And were you counseled by at that parole meeting? Was there a counsel? Was there an attorney there who knew that you were going to actually come, you know, come clean with the, the, the truth and speak clearly about what happened or? My, my prison attorney advised me not to do that. Right, okay. In fact, I told the, my prison attorney, you know what, listen, this is what I'm gonna do. Mm. This, is, this is my statement, mm -hmm. and this is what I'm gonna present. And it's funny because when the commissioning panel ruled in my favor, we walked out and he was like, we did it, hi. And I was like, no, we didn't do anything. You were advising me to do the opposite. Unbelievable. And, and if I would have did the opposite, I would probably still be in prison right. today. Incredible. Incredible. So 
you came out, you got a job, you're, you're you know, I know you as an exemplary human being on every level. Um, what are you doing now? What's happening with, I know you've been in Washington, I know that you've influenced legislation, which is extraordinary, so can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, 2017, um, uh, you know, I was asked by um, Human Rights Watch and another organization, the Anti-Recidivism Coalition, if I wanted to uh, help spearhead um, the charge for the juvenile Miranda Wright bill. And I jumped on it, absolutely. I do want to spearhead this. I want to be the poster child. And so we went to the state capitol and I spoke, I testified before lawmakers about the importance of having juvenile Miranda rights um, uh, applied so that anytime a child is in a custodial situation mm -hmm. and being interrogated, an attorney will be present and explain line by line what their rights are. Okay. That was something that, that, that did not happen for me. Obviously, yeah. You know, and so, um, again, you know, I was very elated to be a part of this, this process. And at the time, Jerry Brown, that bill became, that, that bill came before Jerry Brown and he wind up signing off on that bill, protecting children uh, 15 years and under, okay. under the Miranda Wright rule. Okay. And then, you know, fast forward, we thought that 15 was not the appropriate age. The age should be 18. Yeah. And so we reintroduced that bill. And, and now it's Governor Newsom. Mm -hmm. And so, again, I'm spearheading this, this charge, and I became the poster child for this, this, this bill package. And Governor Newsom wind up signing off on that bill. Amazing. 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 So now... Children in the state of California are protected under the Miranda Wright rule. Uh, until 18? Until 18. Until so, 18. So, but it's not excluding them. It's okay. not excluding children from, from, like, with the get out of jail pass. We're mm -hmm. not saying that. We're just saying that any time a child is in a situation where Miranda is applied, mm -hmm. their rights, they will be explained, their rights will be explained completely and fully fully comprehensively yeah yes okay which you, know, you would think would be the norm anyway but you think it's correct. crazy obviously it, it isn't um just so let, go but, so sorry, now please, yeah. so now we are on a national push to get the juvenile miranda right bill federalized so that it applies in every single state mm -hmm. because look what happened to me i'm not what has happened to me doesn't mean that I'm a unicorn. Mm -hmm. No, man, you know, this has been going on for years. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not the first. Mm -hmm. I'm one of many mm -hmm. that has confessed to a crime that they didn't commit, mm -hmm. you know, and Miranda needs to be applied, mm -hmm. specifically to children. Mm -hmm. And what happened to the, the officers that arrested you and interrogated you for those 25 hours? Uh, you know what, I, I wish I could tell you. I don't know. Okay. I don't know. Wow. Um, and then one little thing that you did mention to me, which I found quite amusing given my background, was that when you were in prison, you used to get GQ magazines. What's that about? Because <laughs> <laughs> I think I was in a lot of those GQ magazines during the same time around the 90s. So just explain that a little bit. Sure. You know what? Um, you know, when I was locked up, man, I, I you know, I, I developed this fascination for... Uh, you know, style mm -hmm. and dressing. 
And so I would always go to the prison library and pick up the GQ magazines mm -hmm. and just thumb through the pages and be like, you know, one day I want to dress like these guys, right, you know right. what I mean? I want to be just like that, right. you know, and that was my fantasy. Yeah. That's what I dreamt about. That's what my fixation was on getting to that little speck at the end of my tunnel. Right. You know what I mean? Like so a vision board, like was a modeling yourself because you didn't have, you, yeah, you, it was something to aim for. That's right. Amazing. And so, so, you know, when I would go to the library, you know, the library age would automatically put aside the latest GQ magazine. And then when I would come in, I would get the magazine and, you know, go through it. And, you know, it, be, it was a way of life for me. Right, right. Yeah. No, I get that. I totally understand that. Um, and now you're, how, what are you working on at the moment then, Jerome? What's, 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 what's in store for you? What's, what, where do you want to be? Have you, have you sort of looked at those questions, those big questions in life? Um, you know, I'm happily married. Mm -hmm. Been married for uh, two years now to a lovely woman. Um, I love her. I love her. That was the best thing that I could have done was, was uh, come home and get married. My, my whole perspective has changed. Mm -hmm. You know, um, we bought a new home. I'm truly blessed with that as well. Um, where am I at? You know, I am really, really... Um, fixated on this uh, juvenile Miranda right push, mm -hmm. you know, to get it federalized across the board because mm -hmm. I don't want what happened to me to happen, you know, ever again. Right. But we know that it will happen. Right, right. But I could at least put up roadblocks right. to prevent that from right, happening. Right, right. And that is the passage of the juvenile Miranda rights. Okay, and, and as far as motivating, I, I know you're involved with uh, your wife's son, who's your stepson, I presume. I forget his name. Sai. Sai. But you know, I don't call him my stepson. He's oh, yeah. Listen, I put him to bed every night. Right. I get him up in the morning. Right. You know what I mean? Take him to school. I'm, I go to all of his school functions. Yeah. I'm his dad. If you put a, if you check box, if you put a list of things, you know, what is a dad? Look, I will check every single box. I'm his dad. Yeah, you're his dad. You know, I got socks that say I'm the number one dad. Yeah, you know I'm sure. I mean? I've seen you with him and you're extraordinary. Um, I, and again, you know, it goes back to that father thing as well, of losing your father whilst you were inside. You know, I lost my father as an 11-year-old boy when he was 45. And you always, it, it dictates how you are as a father. It dictates how you are. In, within your peer group, you know, you sort of want to be a better father. You want to sure. be the father that you missed. Sure. And I think uh, that's a positive in some ways. So, um, thank you for today. Thank you for sharing your story with us. Thank you for your dignity and your class and your elegance and your empathy and your your grace. I really, I mean it. I, I've. I've met a lot of people in my life, but I've, you, you're, you're up there as one of the most graceful human beings I've ever met in my life, and I'm honored to have you here in my Thank house. You, Thank you, Thank, Thank you, you. Really. It means a lot to me. Thank you. It means a lot to me.